0: Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft, And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. At the end of 1991, while the world was rocking out to Nirvana's Nevermind and U2's New Direction, a certain George Harrison decided to go back out on tour, but only in Japan, and doing it with his ex-husband-in-law, Eric Clapton, in tow as well. What could have been the start of a whole new way of doing things for George instead essentially ended up becoming the last part of his active, public-facing solo career. It's, uh,
1: yeah, it should have been a new beginning, the gigs in Japan, shouldn't it? It should. I think with the hindsight, you could see that this could have been the start of him reclaiming his legacy and the Beatles' legacy in the way that Paul... Sort of did essentially, Paul started this in two years earlier in one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine so George could have followed exactly the same path
0: yeah, and he it was only twelve gigs, and I am of an age where I remember these gigs happening and being announced so i 'm pretty certain by the end of one thousand nine hundred and ninety one i 'm reading the beatles monthly there 's no internet that we know of, so you 're kind of just reading the news that you can get. But if you look at the sequence of events, you know, he'd had a successful 87 with Cloud 9. He had a successful 88 with the Wilburys. He had a successful 89 appearing with Tom Petty and putting out his Dark Horse Greatest Hits. He had a successful 1990 Wilburys Volume 3. And it seemed to me as a teenager at the time, well, this was normal. George was just being an active rock star. And now in 1991, he's going to tour Japan. And the buzz very much at the time was, well, this is the this is the, the tester. This is what's, what he's going to do now.
1: Yes, I mean it. Certainly looked that way at the time that this is a a sort of proof of concept. Does he want to? It's it's reasonably low key. He's testing the waters. Does he want to go back out on the road and get back into that uh, uh, sort of touring treadmill? But this this is what Paul has done. This is what Ringo will do with the All Star Band. This is what rock stars do. You release an album, you tour. My other memory of the time is that the late eighties became this.
0: You know, a new type of touring appeared, which was very much based on the old school acts. And if you look at, I I think, I always think it started with kind of Pink Floyd's 87 tour. But then in 1989, you had Massive Rolling Stones Steel Wheels tour, which was a reset. You had the McCartney Flowers in the Dirt tour, big reset. Um, Ringo's coming online with the All-Star Band. You also had that 1989 Who tour, which was a huge success as well and you know Clapton is touring uh, and it makes sense that George could be one of those guys who's
1: just going around playing big gigs i think this is the birth of the the heritage act the 80s had not been kind to a lot of these guys you know the, in in terms of getting to grips with new technology new signs 89 early 90s they're establishing a a, a new role and it is a new way of touring and I, I mean I remember the Stones Steel Wheels tour just being phenomenal success
0: The technology is catching up with these gigs as well there's very lights there's big screens you know you can you're going for the event as opposed yeah. to the the actual gig and, and that kind of event concert thing starts happening, I think, at the end of the, the 1980s. Now, if we look at the larger context of George playing live, though, he was never the most, um, what would you say, ebullient <laughs> person to get on stage. He 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 was probably the first Beatle to want to stop playing live.
1: Pretty much. I mean, I think once you get past those early sort of Hamburg cavern, 1963, 64, maybe, it all starts to become a bit wearisome for George in particular, and certainly in nineteen sixty six he is the the sort of official narrative or the accepted narrative is that George is the first one to tire of this he You can't hear what they're playing, they can't hear what they're playing. The standard of musicianship is pretty sloppy and mean we look at the japan sixty six tour of the Beatles where you can actually hear them playing it's not great plus sixty six Death threats, Philippines, all of those things conspire to, to to send them back to the studio and get them off the road. And I think George is, is most keen on that. And that sort of persists all the way through to 1969, 1970.
0: Yeah, he's, he's a bit resistant about the whole get back, getting up on the roof type thing. And there's almost a recurring theme you'll see, which is it's not that he's a guy with stage fright and it's not that he's a guy who isn't able to do it. He just has ultimate concerns, I think, about doing it in the context of anything to do with the Beatles. Uh, And so in 69, he has
1: two different experiences where he doesn't want to go on the rooftop, but he does go on the road. I think that that's that's exactly right. You know, you see him right up to the literally the moment they're about to step onto the roof. He's saying, I don't want to do this. He's already withdrawn his songs, but yet he will then in 1969, uh, you know, pick up his guitar get on the tour bus with Delaney and Bonnie, stand at the back, learn to play bottleneck slide so he's very happy to get up on stage in a supporting role or a slightly anonymous role standing at the back and and that you know i sometimes think what was paul thinking at this you know he's (laughs) very keen to get them back on the road uh but george in particular doesn't want to do this then the next thing he's off on tour with delaney and bonnie john is in toronto john is at the lyceum they just don't want to be beatles
0: yeah, I like the notion of Paul is like, we should just get on a bus and play some gigs. And George is like, that's an excellent idea. Just not with you. Yeah. Thanks. See you later. Um, when the solo years that kick in then, it's an obvious thing to think of, well, what is the role of, you know, me in the, in the live arena and all of this kind of stuff? And by 1971 and the year of the concert for Bangladesh, there has been another shift in live music, maybe pushed by the Stones, where yeah. you have bands playing these kind of 10,000-seater arenas. You have sound systems that can actually carry a show to the, the back of the room and you have these very tight touring organisations involving airplanes and buses and, and, and all the rest so I guess George as a solo artist starts to kick around the idea of what does it mean to be George Harrison live and the concert for Bangladesh is the first version of that
1: Yeah and that if you think about it he's never been a frontman before he's always just been the, the, the guitar player, uh, the only song of his they ever played was uh, If I Needed Someone you know he got one vocal spot her show basically but he's out front and he is fronting this band of superstars i suppose it's it's, mm. it's the template for every rock and charity gig that will follow <laughs> but he kind of steps up to it and you know he carries it off very successfully it's a huge uh, uh, event uh, critically acclaimed raises lots of money you would think this would be the springboard for him then to to go on tour but he spends so much time in 71, 72, getting Bangladesh, the record, out. And then he starts working on Ravi Shankar albums and things like that, living in the material world. No tour to follow that. Tour 74 comes along.
0: (laughs) Now, we've talked about the concert for Bangladesh in those episodes, and we've talked about um, 1974 in those episodes. But as a recap, by the time we get to 1974, you know, George's initial glow is maybe... Going somewhere slightly different. Um, Paul has started to go out on tour, so none of the Beatles were touring in seventy seventy one. You know, Paul starts in seventy two. Um, w- w- in a nutshell, what would you say of the nineteen seventy four tour?
1: Going into the seventy four tour, I think George is pretty much king of the world at this stage. You know, he's having mm-hmm. number one records. His, his critical standing is very high because of Bangladesh. And he's trying to put together some really quite an ambitious tour in 1974 with sort of world music. But, but at the same time, he's very keen to say this is not going to be a repeat of Bangladesh. I'm not taking Bangladesh on tour. He's trying to do something different. He's completely moved away from the Beatles' sound using a lot of American musicians, LA Express, etc. But this is a big thing. This is the first major US tour by a Beatle. And mm. it's a disaster, an absolute disaster. And I think by the end of it, his critical standing with the tour, with the uh, Dark Horse LP, just off a cliff edge.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a before and after to George's 1974 uh, US tour. And you know, there's a parallel history where he comes out the far side and he's, you know, he's nailed it. We have talked about this before. It's probably a mixture of he was run down, he wasn't in the right place to do it. The audience weren't very receptive. There are bits we've seen where, you know, it's a a killer band. um, But George was having some vocal issues throughout the tour. And there's very much when you read the quotes at the time, the notion of uh, George and we gave them our nervous systems <laughs> kind of coming out that there's, he's giving his nervous system on, on this tour. So when he's asked a few years later, would you go through it again? He says, um, you know, never, not in this life or any other life. At the time it was fantastic but when it really got into the mania of it it was a question of whether to stop or end up dead. And he's kind of putting together the Beatles experience and his 1974 experience. So the 1974 experience doesn't really do anything for him to clear his mind about the the benefits of, of playing live.
1: I think it absolutely convinces him that there are no benefits. And he talked about this in 1979 in an interview he gave to Rolling Stone. Specifically, he was asked, do you miss playing with a regular band and going on the road? And he simply said, no, I don't like going on the road. Sometimes I feel physically very frail. I can feel knackered, really tired, just having to get up early to get an airplane. I can feel ill having to travel. On the road, there are all these medicines flying about to help you catch the plane on time, all that sort of stuff. And I'm a sucker for that. I could do myself in. That was the problem in 1974 when I toured America. I'd done three albums before I went on the road, and I was still trying to finish my own album. By the time it came to going on the road, I was already exhausted. So it's a thoroughly unpleasant experience. And he also contrasts the fact that, you know, when they were in the Beatles, they did 20, 30 minute sets. Now you have to do do a two, two and a half hour set. So he said he doesn't like it at all. Crummy hotels, traveling, temptation, uh, all those medicines flying around. (laughs) Well, it's, it's also this notion
0: of a front man. And, you know, that other early 70s period when the Stones are touring, I think we get the emergence of Mick Jagger as this arena front man. He sort of defines the role of playing to a ten, twelve thousand 12,000 crowd, you know, the pointing and the running and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, not everybody needs to, to perform like that, but we're talking, you know, George, when you said he only had one song on the Beatles tours, you know, he used to be doing every third song back in the Cavern days. So he'd kind of had these diminishing returns over the years and then to go back out and do two 90 minute sets in an evening where he's the the ringleader. I do refuse to believe that there wasn't a version of playing live that couldn't have suited George, but he just never found
1: it. And this wasn't it. This was it. I think with 74, he was trying to be too ambitious. You know, mm-hmm. he genuinely felt that he could bring Ravi Shankar and Indian music to an American audience. I I do wonder if the tour had been in Europe, would it have yeah. been received differently? Would there have been a more sort of open... You know, I'm not dissing our American listeners, but I think in (laughs) the mid-70s, you know, as you say, you had the Stones, you had Dylan's tour in 74, you had Crosby, Sills and Nash, you had Led Zeppelin. It was all about this big, enormous spectacle. And that just did not suit what George does live and what he was trying to deliver in 1974. But I think undoubtedly it it shook his confidence. I I always think that post-74, George's ambitions quite small you know he he kind of felt he'd probably done proven himself with All Things Must Pass he'd done it again with Living in the Material World in terms of hit album number one single if the tour had been successful I think he would probably have had to keep going on that treadmill but in one way it sort of offered him a chance to step back and uh, just basically touring was off the agenda
0: well, it's the big George and Paul difference, which is, you know, if, if George is having a moment to say, "Well, what am I doing this for?" He would really consider that question. Whereas Paul, if he's asked the question, "What are you doing this for?" He's like, "Oh, because it's great fun, and I love playing music, and I love audiences, and you know, that's not that's not George, and that's fine. Just they're they're, they're different people. I mean, he says at the end of that seventy nine interview, "I don't miss it at all being in crummy hotels, eating lousy food, always having to be somewhere else," and he's a homebody and. The the reality is for the 80s, the Beatles, um, you know, don't have any kind of live representation on the road. You know, Paul and George and Ringo are not touring throughout the the 1980s. But there is these kind of slow tiptoes back into the spotlight because, as I said, he's not essentially stage fright George, who is kind of doing like an Andy Partridge from XTC and never setting foot on the stage ever again. He does do some guest appearances in the 80s.
1: He does. And, you know, even in the 70s, he does that Saturday Night Live appearance with Paul Simon. He pops up on an Eric Clapton tour. Monty Python as well. Monty Python as well. Exactly. So in in 1984, he suddenly appears on stage with Deep Purple, which you think if you had to pick a band (laughs) for uh, George Harrison to appear. But you can start from there, from 1984, where he he sort of comes on at a Deep Purple show. There's a slow return, as you say, with these guest spots and reasonably high profile uh, guest spots. Most of them, Deep Purple playing uh, Sydney, Australia. He seems to have just gone along because he didn't know much about Deep Purple, but he knew uh, John Lord (laughs) and Ian Pace were his neighbors. And he thought, well, go and check out this band. I've heard of this band.
0: I think, yeah, he's, uh, I think it's quite funny. He wasn't like trying to elbow his way in as a deep purple guest. He was just like, I'll go hang out with my neighbours. And the gig is very, very loud. And eventually he trundles
1: on stage and he's given
0: a guitar and away they go.
1: Pretty much. So I think he was there for the Australian Grand Prix. And he he says in 1987, he said, um, I never knew their music. I mean, I heard this one thing about smoke on the water or something like that. I've actually never seen them. I heard they were in the Guinness Book of Records for being the loudest group in the world. So I thought, well, I was in Australia at the time. They happened to be doing a concert in Sydney. I thought I'd go and check them out, get my earplugs and go see them. I really enjoyed the show. I sat on stage for part of the show behind the loudspeakers. And then I walked down and sat in the centre of the hall. It wasn't too loud. It was really funny. I liked it. And then basically they say, there you go. Here's a guitar. Come on. They do Lucille as an encore. There's, it, bits of it are sort of on YouTube. You can't hear George... At all. Uh, He says, I think I was playing in the wrong key, but it didn't, didn't matter. He's just up on stage with the gang.
0: Yeah. And uh, he's back then with a gang in 1985 for the Carl Perkins TV special. Ringo is there. And that's a very, that's a very kind of prominent role that he has in that.
1: It is. Yes. And I think probably he wouldn't have done this for anybody else except Carl Perkins. Carl Parkins talks about how he had been told that George Harrison wouldn't do it. There's no point asking. He's retired. He does ask, sends him a little video message. Uh supposedly Paul was invited as well, but he uh he was too busy or was off on doing other things in uh mm. nineteen eighty five. So yes, it, it it it's this is George playing songs that he grew up with, uh, with one of his guitar heroes. So I think again, it's a different thing. Although he's sort of prominently featured it's not his gig. He doesn't really have a responsibility. Clapton is there. Dave Edmonds is there. Ringo is there. Mark Lewison is in the audience. You can see him, him dancing at one point in the, uh, in the audience. <laughs> it's a very friendly group of musicians. It's a very casual vibe to the whole thing, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, when we think of the 1980s and we think of, you know, these kind of charity gigs with the biggest stars in the world, there's one gig that sits out above all others, which is uh, Heartbeat 86, which... Is everyone's favourite? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Heartbeat 86. Yeah, okay. who, who could forget Heart-
0: Heartbeat 86? <laughs> who could forget Heartbeat 86? Well, I could never forget Heartbeat 86. It was a benefit concert in March 86 in the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham. And it was put together essentially by Roy Wood. And it was the best of acts from, you know, Birmingham, the Midlands and the UK. So you had uh, the Steve Gibbons band, Denny Lane, the Fortunes, Roy Wood himself, uh, UB40, Ruby Turner, the Applejacks. Famous friends. Uh, Robert Plant and the Big Town Playboys, the Rock and Berries, and then a very long set and the last full UK set from ELO. Their last performance in the UK as ELO with Bev Bev and the classic lineup. That's, that sounds like a good night out.
1: Was this a seminal moment in your teenage years?
0: <laughs> well, was, uh, chunks of it were televised. Certainly the ELO set is, is on YouTube. The, after ELO did a, a full set, the Moody Blues came out and did three songs. But then it's time for George Harrison. And friends. And this is a significant appearance because, of course, um, Jeff Lynn is there. This is where it all begins. The Jeff and George show kind of begins at this point. Um, there was also supposed to have been a move reunion at that gig. Did you know that? And they just oh, no. They just could not get it together because Jeff was there and um, Carl Wayne was there and Roy was there. And there was a vague rehearsing done. Uh, it would have been nice to have had a move reunion, a proper lineup of the move doing their stuff but anyway it never happened
1: Was it because they all fell out or they just didn't have time or was it just logistical rather than emotional I would say yes all of
0: those things All <laughs> of those things It just wasn't really planned out you know but um, it's it's
1: a great concert I happen to know that you have a tour programme <laughs>
0: well, uh, a few years ago, uh, listeners, we went to see Roy Wood in concert and uh, in, uh, where was it? Cheltenham. For Christmas. Yes. Yeah, so we thought this would be fun, because he only tours at Christmas. And uh, Rooting around in a record shop that day, I found for a tenor a copy of the programme to Heartbeat 86, and we managed to get backstage, meet Roy Wood, I presented him with this programme to, to sign, and uh, he had drawn the cover and he hadn't a copy of, of it himself. So I decided not to give it to him and to keep it myself. <laughs> Which I probably
1: should have given it to him, really. I was sure you were going to give it to him. Uh, I think he was sure you were going to give it to him. No.
0: No. And so now I have a signed copy of the Heartbeat 86 programme by Roy Wood. And uh, Roy Wood doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. And a picture of me, the happiest man in the world, next to Roy Wood. Anyway. So he's popping up again. Uh, There's the prototype
1: Wilbury's in 1987. This is one of those gigs that I would just love to have been there. You know, if you had a time machine, where would you go? Would you go to the Cavern? Would you go to, uh, you know, Candlestick Park? Would you go to the Concert for Bangladesh? No, I would go to the Palomino Club in North Hollywood on the 19th of February, 1987, <laughs> to see uh, Taj Mahal and the Graffiti Band. Hmm. And who's in the audience? Well, George Harrison, Bob Dylan, and John Fogarty are all in the audience. having Having a a beer or two, and eventually they all end up on stage. And John Fogerty does um, Proud Mary, which is significant
0: at the time because he had been in this protracted standoff where he would not perform Creedence Clearwater Revival material. And again, we saw John Fogerty earlier this year <laughs> play Dublin, and he mentioned once or twice that he now owns all his songs yes. and he's going to play them all, and he's very delighted with himself. But this was significant at the time because he'd... He'd had his, what, centerfield album in 85, and he was getting back into it, but he still wasn't doing um, Credence material. Um, what else they do? They do Carl Perkins' Matchbox, Knock on Wood, In the Midnight Hour, Honey Don't, Blue Suede Shoes, Watching the River Flow, um, which is a, uh, George sings that one.
1: George sings that. So this is interesting because Dylan is on stage, but Dylan doesn't actually uh, sort of take a lead vocal. So you get George singing, Watching the River Flow with Bob there on stage. Jesse Ed Davis is part of the band, at the, uh, of, of the graffiti band at this point, And he, he played on the original version of uh, Dylan's version of Watching the River Flow. But it's very funny. Uh, the, uh, the best thing is this is all on YouTube. So that makes me think, you know, was it less spontaneous than uh, we, 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 it, we might have been led appeared. to believe? But... It's very funny that the fact that you've got George Harrison and Bob Dylan on stage is overshadowed by the fact that John Fogarty is singing Pride Mary. You know, this is, and it's reported in Guitar World. This is, this is the big, uh, the the, the big event, not that Bob and George are together.
0: You know, how good would John Fogarty have been as a Wilbury? He would have been a good Wilbury.
1: He would have been a very good Wilbury. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That that would have been a great choice to get him in there. Um, the Princess Trust gig in nineteen eighty seven, George appears there. I, my recollection of the times these Princess Trust gigs for two or three years were just all these guys were just turning up at these gigs, and they all seemed. Very old at the time, but they're all like just in their early
1: forties. Yeah, it, it it was exactly that, and uh, there are more of them in my head than actually happened. I think you know, but yes. in, in my head, I was thinking, well, this is every six months there was a Princess Trust gig, and it was always Phil Collins on drums, Mark King from <laughs> Level Forty Two on bass, Elton <laughs> John on on piano. You know, it was drugs. It, uh, <laughs> it was uh, you know, Clapton was always there, Mark Knopfler was always there, June nineteen eighty seven, Wembley Arena. George and Ringo, two for the price of one.
0: And this is the, this is this thing again of George being very much reticent about, you know, trying to avoid people's expectations of, of, of seeing the Beatles. So George said, you know, Ringo phoned me up saying, somebody's asked me if I'm doing the Princess Trust and, you know, I can't really do, do it without playing it with you. And George says, well, I don't know about that. Ringo's always my friend, but this made it nervous. It felt straight away that somebody's trying to set this up again. Uh, it's one thing going on as me, but if I'm going on as the Beatles, I won't be able to have any kind of control over it. The pressure, you know, the people expecting you to do something. It's a wonder. We didn't all go bananas, really. There we go. Nervous systems again. Because, uh, I mean, just say for that instance, the Prince's Trust, it was bad enough for me then. Ringo. He, he always talks about pressure instead of joy, you know. He never yeah. said, like, Paul's take could have been something ah oh, it was great fun to be up there with Ringo again whereas George is very much no 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 this is a this is a pressure led
1: situation and i don't like it that's it because you know Paul had already done one of these princes trust gigs and he is having a ball and you know he's getting to sing with Tina Turner and Brian Adams and he just looks like he's having great fun with with George if you look at the clip of him in 87 he's very he, you know he hasn't been on stage front and center for a while he's nervous he looks nervous, he does not look relaxed, and he does not look as if he's having a good time.
0: And, uh, you know, he he talks about that on, on the Aspel talk show in 1988, which, again, he appears on with Ringo, which is a fantastic piece of television, um, where he says, you know, he felt like he was going to the electric chair sat there for hours waiting to go on, very, very nervous. And, you know, I, I, I think of that clip of, um, you know, Paul trying to make it to the Billy Joel gig on time, and it's all a big hoot, yeah. you know. And uh, if, if you haven't seen that, look it up on YouTube, whereas George finds this very, very stressful. Um, but he's still making guest appearances. He pops up on uh, uh, at Wembley Arena in October 87, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty and Roger McGuinn um, to do Rainy Day Women.
1: Yes, again, uh, something I would like to have have seen. You know, Dylan at this stage uh, is doing these these gigs, and that's a dream lineup. You know, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Roger McGuinn, George is just hanging out with people. You know, he he goes along backstage. He's very happy to get get up on stage, but again, in that background role, and going back to the uh, Princess Trust gig, Graham Thompson and his. Very, very good book about George. He has a quote from George about that performance. And he said, there was a fan going absolutely bananas. He was so fanatical, kept staring at me with this manic glint in his eye. Even if I had been considering coming back to do large shows, the sight of this guy made me think twice. So, again, the pressure, the nerves, the mania. He, it, it's, yeah. it, it's almost like some sort of PTSD, I think.
0: But if, if, again, if we think about that timeline we mentioned at the the start of the episode, you know, when George jumps up on stage with Bob, Tom and Roger McGuinn uh, in October 87, uh, the Wilburys still hasn't happened yet. No. And um, that happens in, in 1988. But the end of 87 is when this George activity kicks off. So you have Got My Mindset New being a number one hit in the US. You have Cloud Nine being... A massive album. It really was a very, very, very popular record. And he is the number one Beatle, you know. Press to Play hasn't set the world on fire in 86. Paul's a bit quiet in 87, putting out a Greatest Hits album, Um, leading to my favourite thing, which was Paul and George in the top 10 in the UK at the same time, at the end of 87, once upon a long ago and got my mind set on you. Um, But it kicks off that domino of events of Cloud Nine, Wilburys One, Greatest Hits all the para-Wilbury's activity, Wilbury's 3, and then we're into 1991. So
1: there had been talk of a Wilbury's tour, but that never really happens. You know, at the time, I thought, wouldn't that be fantastic if they toured and they could do solo work and Wilbury's work? But it, with retrospect, in retrospect, I think it's probably better that it didn't happen. It's, it's, it's a fun parlor game uh to play yeah tom petty at the time said i think it would work if we wanted to do it i don't think we ever considered it really there were a lot of nights when the conversation would roll around to that but i don't think anybody ever took it seriously i think it would ruin it in a way then you're obligated to be responsible and it's not in the character of that group it would make very formal and that would be the wrong spirit and i think that's probably the best analysis of that
0: I mean, the first Wilburys album is Lightning in a Bottle and it, it had left everybody with a, a good taste in their mouth and you, you wouldn't want to run that down. But it is worth saying how in 1989 that sound was everywhere. You had the Wilbury singles, you had the Roy Orbison singles, you had the Tom Petty singles. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a prevalent sound and although it's often linked to, to, to Jeff Lynn as being the Jeff Lynn sound, but it is also a George Harrison type of sound as well because it, it kind of came to the world via Cloud Nine so he he is kind of on, on top of things at, at that point in time and you know the, that music is everywhere and even Bob Dylan who doesn't make an album with Jeff Lynne he comes back with Oh Mercy so there's a big push from all of these guys and George is part of that so a, a tour makes sense and it's Eric Clapton that kind of throws down the gauntlet.
1: This doesn't happen until 1991 um, so the year after Travelling Wilburys, Volume 3. And it's Clapton that persuades him back on tour. The sort of context for this is that Clapton had just finished his tour. He'd taken a year-long break following the death of his son, Connor, uh, in New York. But he he was sort of back touring. He was playing one of his residencies at the Albert Hall, 24-night run. And George goes to see the show. Now, he doesn't get up on stage at the show, but he's hanging back. Uh, backstage, and Chuck Lavelle, Clapton's uh, keyboard player, he says, Eric more or less threw the gauntlet down. He said, come on, George, you don't get out there in the trenches like the rest of us. You need to get out and play. George's response was, well, I don't have a band. And Eric says, I have one. You can have it. You can have me. How's that? He was backed into a corner. So, again, how much of that is genuine or not? It seems... George must have had some willingness to be persuaded. That kind of a challenge doesn't necessarily, if you're George Harrison, I think, prompt you into touring. But he must have, off the back of the Wilburys, I think, had some inkling to get back out there. Paul's Flowers in the Dirt tour had been hugely successful. So maybe he yeah. was just thinking, yeah, now is the time. And this, it was sort of everything aligned at this point. And Clapton suddenly says, yeah, I have a band. I'll come and play with you. Let's do it. The Flowers in the Dirt tour... Um, is very successful, and
0: it's the tour where Paul leans into playing the Beatles music. And, uh, you know, we should have probably also mentioned that by this point, there is a Beatles resurgence, not that they ever disappeared, but, you know, the Beatles CDs... Uh, coming in at the end of the nineteen eighties, um, which which kind of codifies the albums all around the world and the catalogue and you know, there's you know the twenty years ago retrospective documentary and all the rest. So the Beatles are heading into the nineties in a in a good place where, you know, all the legal stuff's coming together, they're, you know, starting to formulate a, a Beatles plan that we'll see play out throughout the nineties. The so there's a lot of goodwill where people would be very happy to see a Beatle play some Beatles songs and some other songs in concert. There is a sequence of events where yeah George just can't say no he's he's not in seclusion you know he's not uh, you know he's had successful records he's had successful um you know uh, you know works with other artists um you know we've seen Beatles on the road with Paul it all works out he's been handed a band on a plate and there must have been part of his brain that said well, you know, what, what would George Live be like? You know, I've done this one other tour, which was really not very pleasant. How does he say no?
1: And again, since 74, the whole touring experience for the artist has has changed, uh, particularly at that when you're operating at that level. But having said that, you know, Clapton will say George was really scared to death. He changed his mind about five times. So he's clearly conflicted about this. And again, there is, I think, just those lingering memories of... The Beatles, Beatlemania, the death threats, the critical reaction to Tour Seventy Four must all have been in the back of his mind. But perhaps he is backed into a corner. He's he's committed. He he tours with Eric Clapton's band, which is not a George Harrison style of band. I would say.
0: No, I don't. I think you know. and We'll come back to the footage and the performances later on. But I, you know, it it definitely seems like he is added into this thing. There's a certain kind of lack of organicness maybe to the to, to the band and the players that uh, doesn't really serve them very well in the end I, I think and um, but they're all hugely talented players
1: they're all hugely talented players but they're used to playing with Eric Clapton I mean literally they are Clapton's band they've just finished a tour now they're gonna basically switch out front man Eric steps down and George steps up it's a very proficient band, but they're not, as you say, organically people. I think Ray Cooper is probably the only person that George will regularly have played with. You know, Ray Cooper produced Gone Tropo, for example. It's a band that they have to rehearse a lot. They have to learn these new songs, but they're all great players.
0: Yeah, let's go through the list. Like Ray Cooper, as you said, has worked musically with George and Elton and also was a key figure in Handmade Films. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the band, you have George Harrison, obviously, Eric Clapton, uh, Andy Fairweather-Lowe, the great guitarist who, as well as being a member of Amen Corner and his own solo artist, has been a sideman for Roger Waters and all the rest. He's a, uh, you know, he's one of those guys you call. Um, Nathan East on bass. Uh, Chuck Lavelle on piano and Hammond organ. And he's now in The Stones. He's
1: effectively The Stones keyboard player, yeah. Now, I've
0: always pronounced this as Greg Falanges.
1: <laughs> yes, that's how I would pronounce it, but I don't think that's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh he's on keyboards and backing vocals. Steve Farone on drums and he's a good choice and he eventually is the guy who replaces Stan Lynch in The Heartbreakers later in the nineties.
1: Yeah. The only time I have ever seen Steve Farone was uh he was playing in The Straits, which is like made up of people that used to be in Dar Straits. I don't think he was ever in Dar right. Straits, but uh Are you telling me he wasn't at the concert for George? Was he at the concert mm. George? Oh, I'm going to have to if look only, that up If only now. you'd been there. <laughs> I, 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 who could we ask? Who could we ask? I, I, I know.
0: Um, and then Katie Kassoon and Tessa Niles as backing vocalists, who also used to sing with you know, late 80s. everybody Floyd and Roger Waters and everybody. Yeah, everybody, basically, if you look in the backing vocals of all your favourite albums. Paul McCartney, pressed to Play. Oh, yeah. Um, so a good band, you know. There it's was good no, band. Uh, there good was band. Yeah, um, Ray Cooper has a
1: has a has a you know a, a quite a pedigree. He's he's a good pub quiz question. So the question is: uh, name people who have both played on stage and on record with each of the four solo Beatles. And uh, Ray Cooper is the number one answer there.
0: And who else do we have on that list, fact fans?
1: Well, I think Klaus Vermann Mm-hmm. and I think Eric Clapton. I'm pretty <laughs> sure Jim Jim Keltner. Oh, yeah. Has played with with Paul. Elton John, I don't think, I think he he just misses out by not having played on a studio record.
0: Yeah, he's played live with Paul.
1: Yeah, I think Billy Preston hasn't played in a studio with Paul. Hmm. There you go, folks. I'm sure someone will correct us.
0: (laughs) So it is time for this band to put thoughts and deeds into actions. Um, I'm sure they must have had a break before they started rehearsals, so we'll have a break right now. Well done. End of part one. Intermission.
1: In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer.
0: End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So, the 1st of November, 1991, they start rehearsing in Bray Studios in Windsor in the UK. Um, About three and a bit weeks of rehearsals. Um,
1: It's intense. It is pretty intense. So, they rehearse from the 1st of November to the 24th. They're learning... New songs, songs they haven't played before, and uh, with a, a, a new frontman. And George is rehearsing with a big band for the first time probably since 1974. So if you think of it that way, uh, they get a lot done. They do get a lot done. So they, they start rehearsing on
0: November the 1st. The, the tour is due to start um, uh, on the December the 1st. So they're giving themselves a month to rehearse, get everything together, um, you know, and get out there. Does, does, does this sound familiar Let's give ourselves four weeks. To <laughs> well, at least he's not writing a new album. I'll give that's him that. That's, that's, that's the true. best part. But it's, uh, you know, th- and there's footage online on YouTube of um, them rehearsing in, in Bray Studios uh, from a Japanese press team. So that happens on November the, the 12th that George and Eric are being interviewed. And again, George is, um, he, and I, I mean this in the nicest way possible, he's not, he really has to be quite, and, and real about everything. He doesn't have
1: the the mode that he goes in. No, he doesn't have a sort of PR switch that he can flip on. And in fact, it's Clapton in that interview, the little clips that are available, is sort of keeping the conversation going, is sort of chivying it along. And, um, you know, they're talking about George's guitar sound and Clapton said, oh, I heard something the other day, this Belinda Carlisle and the guy playing on that song, Just he just has taken your entire tone and George goes yeah that was me it is quite funny and quite stilted and it's odd that Clapton is the one that is sort of keeping the conversation going but there is this question they sort of say you know will you be playing something mm-hmm. as if George Harrison could tour and not do that and the, the interviewer sort of says oh that's a song that you wrote about Paddy Boyd and George goes mm, no no <laughs> not no 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 and the interviewer is a bit thrown by this and says, "Well, is is there what? what's did you write? Something? What did you write for Patty? Is there another song?" And George thinks about this and he goes, "Isn't it a pity?" <laughs> and and all the time, Eric is sitting beside He's him, sitting right beside him. Yeah, yeah, husband-in-law.
0: So strange, and I, I don't like. You do wonder what what does Eric get out of this? And there's part of their friendship I don't really understand. I understand why George's friends would say Joe Brown. You know, makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Or Jeff Lynn. I do not understand um, why George and Eric are friends, irrespective of the whole wife thing. And you know, this is a little bit of foreshadowing for what's about to happen.
1: But um, yeah, like they don't, like they don't seem warm. They do, they don't. I mean, Clapton seems a particularly cold fish. Is that the expression? That is the expression. S- so yeah, I mean, I think I think initially when they meet. George is probably quite admiring of Clapton's guitar playing, but there's mm. just something. And clearly, they have they have a love of women in common. They <laughs> they have guitar playing in common. They're both into cars, so yeah, there are points there. But personality-wise, they seem very different. The whole husband-in-law thing—you mm. never hear Clapton say that. You never hear Clapton talk about that incident or that relationship in that way. And I sometimes do think George is sort of ramping up the guilt factor for Eric. Hmm. You know, I look at me. I'm taking this incredibly well. You have stolen my wife, but I'm laughing about it. I'm joking about it. Don't feel bad. And the more that you tell someone not to feel bad, the worse they feel sometimes. <laughs> and I I do sometimes think My there is God. an element maybe, of that.
0: Maybe George is like an Irish mammy. Oh, I'm not upset. I'm just
1: disappointed type thing. Yes. Yeah, I do. I, I do sometimes wonder: is is there an element of that in the in that relationship? But it it seems very genuine. It it seems very genuine. I'm probably projecting. It does
0: seem genuine? Yeah. And I guess. Well, I guess I probably am projecting. But I I just can't help but feel that. Um, Eric Clapton is no fun. He's no crack, as we say in this part of the world. And uh, you know, maybe that's just me projecting as well. Um, they start rehearsing on the first of November. They arrive in Tokyo on the twenty eighth of November, nineteen ninety one. And uh, you know, as is the the way with tours and the Beatleland land, they start um, things with a, a press conference. You know, um, why not? Uh, and uh, they're in um, they're in the same hotel as the Beatles.
1: They're staying at the Capital Tokyo Hotel, which was the former Tokyo Hilton, where the Beatles had stayed in 1966. I wonder, was that, um,
0: again, a source of uh, joy for George? Or did he notice? Or did it just ramp up the stress? Or
1: did it trigger him? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? So then they start rehearsing. They start their dress rehearsals.
0: So it's worth pointing out, just you know, because time plays tricks on the, the mind, George is in Japan 25 years after the Beatles tour. That's all. 25 years. This tour is over 32 years old now, but at the time it was only 25 years, which, as we all know, 25 years ago was 1995. There you go. <laughs> so they do start rehearsals at the Yokohama Arena um, on November the 30th, so they get some rehearsals on the venue. And then the first official concert, um it's kind of an unofficial concert so to speak sorry it's, it's for vips and things
1: it's for vips which is sort of record company bigwigs and politicians etc and uh, george talks about that and says it was a very cold concert they were clapping but it was more difficult than we thought that warmed us up though the first real show i had some nerves but it was just right the balance of nerves and adrenaline and it proved to be one of the best performances so they're performing for a an older audience who are not paying to be there are not paying fans, and yeah. um, that's effectively the unofficial dress rehearsal.
0: And the band travel by train between venues, and at each station there's Harry Krishna devotees bringing food, which um, I guess that doesn't happen on an Eric Clapton tour.
1: I'm guessing not, but that's that's quite yeah. s- quite sweet. <laughs> So,
0: we have a, a good breakdown of their day to day diary. Um, so, December the 2nd and 3rd, they play the Osaka Joe Hall. Um, December the 4th, they go shopping. That's nice. There's lots of shopping on this tour at the Hankyu department store in Osaka. Do you think they closed the whole store for them the way they would have for the Beatles? I don't know, maybe just the Armani and Halfords. (laughs) 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 Um, December the 5th, they play the Nagoya International Trade Fair Hall. Um, On December the 6th, they play Hiroshima Sun Palace. And then on December the 7th, they have a day off at the Hiroshima Peace Park.
1: Yes, so they all go to pay their respects at the Hiroshima Peace Park, except uh, Eric, who goes shopping. Literally at the Giorgio Armani uh, store,
0: <laughs> and you know we're we're kind of you know a, a week into the tour at this point,
1: and um, it's all going well. It's uh, not going that well in terms of uh, interpersonal relationships, shall we say?
0: So this has been recounted in a couple of different places, but once the tour kicks off, very curiously, even though this is all you know, a huge amount of momentum coming from Eric Clapton to make this happen. Somehow, George and Eric just sort of don't hang out anymore.
1: There seems to be a, a certain coldness. Graham Thompson in his book characterises this as a growing rift. And he suggests that Clapton was having second thoughts about the wisdom of uh, lending his band to George. So Kitty Kasun one of the backing singers, she says, Eric's nose was a bit put out. The ego has to kick in somewhere. Otherwise, you wouldn't go on stage at all. And everyone got on so well with George. I mean, we got on well with Eric, but I think there was a slight underlying tension there. So there seems to have been some initial falling out between George and Eric's manager, Robert Forrester, before they left London, so much so that Forrester doesn't fly with them to join the tour, and he would normally be with Clapton on tour. Uh, Steve Ferone, a little bit more... Up front, Wilbur War more forthright. He said there was tension between Roger Forrester and George. Roger was Eric's manager, so I guess Eric joined in. Hmm. When Eric was on stage, he barely acknowledged George through the entire tour until the very last gig. There was no amicable interplay between them on stage at all. Eric had this block of ice around him. It was a strange vibe. I don't like to second guess what people are thinking, but George was such a social person, and Eric is not that kind of person. I think he maybe felt a little bit threatened Or maybe he was feeling a bit disenfranchised. It wasn't bad blood, but it was uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, and Eric Clapton, who's done loads of guest appearances on records and things in the previous 20 years. But, you know, he hadn't been in this position as a touring person um, for a long time, where he's essentially second fiddle. And, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I know there's some overlap between George Harrison audiences and Eric Clapton audiences, but it's a very different type of show than an Eric Clapton show you know there's no not not really the same kind of soloing or showboating and that that you kind of get with Clapton playing guitar so yeah i guess there is ego involved as as Kate says there kind of has to be
1: there has to be and i think again as you say there's probably two elements to this one it's a very tightly structured show Whereas in Clapton shows there is greater freedom for improvisation and blues, jams and things like that. And the second thing, the point that people are making here and that people always make about George is he's incredibly likable, he's very social, he's hanging out with the band. You know, even the fact that they all go to the Hiroshima Peace Park. Yeah. And George is there. Eric doesn't go. He goes and buys himself some nice suits at the Armani shop. So again, George is becoming close to the band in a way that Eric perhaps isn't, despite the fact that they are his band, it's maybe more of a professional relationship. George is socialising with the band.
0: Yeah, and that is true. George is social, so we shouldn't, you know, assume this thing that just because he's the quiet beetle, uh, as they say, he isn't a social animal. He is, you know, and he's known for having, you know, he likes musicians, he likes you know, having fun and sort of not taking things too seriously. And he likes, you know, we know that people would go over to Friar Park and play music into the small hours and hang out and do whatever they do. You know, as I said, uh, you know, earlier on, that's why I think George and Joe Brown, I can see them hanging out, but George and Eric Clapton, I I don't really see them hanging out.
1: George likes to be part of a gang. And whether that's inviting people over to play ukuleles at his house or jumping up on stage with, Bob Dylan to sing Rainy Day Women. He just, he just kind of likes being part of a gang. So before we go back to the, the tour
0: diary, um, we might just have a quick look at the choice of songs because, uh, you know, it's uh, if you were trying to design a George Harrison solo show, I don't think you could choose a better collection of songs than the songs that they, they chose. And, um, you know, they... George said in the press conference in Japan, we chose these songs because they were either a single or a hit record or some kind of feeling that it would be a good song like Taxman. Regardless if it's the 60s, 70s, 80s or 90s, there's always a taxman. The song seems to fit and some I thought would also be reminiscent um, of uh, such as If I Needed Someone, which I sang at the Budokan 26 years ago. So, you know, he's not, doesn't mind looking back and he doesn't mind giving a nod to, to these things.
1: Yeah, he seems to have embraced the Beatles' past and, yeah. and, and the collection. Now, I suppose, cynically, you could say, well, did he have enough solo material to fill a set? It's a very representative selection, and there aren't many songs that are missing that yeah. I, w- I would have added to the list. Maybe there's one or two that I might have left off, but uh, interestingly, there's not much from the post Seventy-four period of his solo career. So originally they did include "Love Comes to Everyone," which is a great song. Uh, kicks off the uh, George Harrison uh, album from nineteen seventy-nine. Yep. Clapton played on that on the studio version, but uh, that that's dropped pretty quickly. And that, I think that's a shame because it's a good mm-hmm. it's a good commercial song. Clapton does a version of it, not a particularly good version of it, uh, in two thousand and five uh, on, on on his album Back Home, but. Um, Yeah, so it kicks off I Want to Tell You, Old Brian Shoe, Tax Man. So you open with three Beatles songs. Yep. Paul isn't going to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, three great songs. Um, Then it goes on to Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth If I Needed Someone and then Something. You know, hit after hit at this point.
1: It's just, yeah, uh, absolutely. Then Fish on the Sand and Love Comes to Everyone which were only played on the First of December, and fish on the sand played on the second of december, and then they 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 ditch those, but fish on the sand is a is a nice catchy uh nine yep. track what is life dark horse piggies
0: yeah piggies piggies, i know
1: I don't know whether I would have in, you know i don't I don't necessarily need to hear piggies plus the extra verse about yeah. pig, piggy banks and things, but uh
0: Yeah, it's an odd choice, Piggies, but, you know, it's not really an arena rocker. But then, in case you wanted to get a snack or go to the bathroom, Eric uh, comes forward and does a four-song set. So he does Pretending, Old Love, Badge. Well, that's interesting. Um, And Wonderful Tonight, which, um, man, I I think, I've had to check, but I think it's the worst song ever.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think if you look it up, it it is, it is, uh, it, it does get that. It's a terrible song.
0: It's a terrible, terrible, terrible song. Um but then again Eric Clapton
1: is a terrible man. Okay. Um so <laughs> so So you have this you have this situation where they're on stage together, George and Eric Clapton, they play Badge, the song that they wrote together, and then yeah. Eric Clapton sings the song that he wrote about George's ex-wife, to whom he was at that time married. And George is what? You know, it's very strange. It's very strange. Um, And then after that um,
0: break, you've got uh, kind of a a run of hits to to close the show down.
1: So Got My Mind Set On You, the number one hit single and the last number one hit single by A Beatle.
0: Oh, yeah. You just wait until the... (laughs) Until the... yeah. Anyway. Anyway.
1: Okay. Uh, Got My Mind Set On You, Clyde Nine, Here Comes the Sun, My Sweet Lord, All Those Years Ago, Cheer Down, which is a great song, Devil's Radio, and Isn't It a Pity. It's hard to fault.
0: That's hard to fault. Isn't It a Pity is a great song to end a set with, you know, it wouldn't be, you'd kind of think, oh, you know, you'd drop a big hit in there, but no, that's the song you want to hear at the end of a
1: George Harrison set. You'd, it is, and you've got that, that lovely chorus, that, that big fade out, the Reminds me of some other song, but... uh. (laughs) And then there's an encore
0: of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, of course. And then they finish their gig, just like ELO
1: finish all their gigs, with "Rollover," Beethoven. Again, I think that's a nice touch to finish with uh, a, a sort of a song that, you know, a rock and roll cover that George used to sing in The Beatles. So yeah, any songs he should have included. I don't know, I might have dropped Piggies. I might have included Blow Away. yeah from from the George Harrison album. Um but I think I think that's pretty it'd be nice to hear it's all too much.
0: Yes, it would have been nice to hear that. I, I guess because of the setting it would have been too difficult to do anything that was too Indian or sitar heavy. Mm. So you were never gonna get, you know, um the inner light or anything like that. Yeah. But I, I would I wouldn't have minded a bit of the inner light. Um but yeah that's a pretty solid set list. That's pretty Pretty good. I can't. Uh, again, he could have added in maybe a handle with care, but that wasn't really the vibe at the time. Um, no, I'm, I'd be pretty happy with that if that was my night out with a, at a George Harrison gig. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of standard set list. Um, but but let's go back to their 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 tour diary. So then on December the 8th, they have another day off in Fukuoka. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know. And uh, they play the International Hall there on December the 9th. And then December the 10th and 11th, the Osaka-Joe Hall performance. And um, then they also play there on the 12th. George has a, a cold and he, he goes to the doctor. But what's happening in the background is more who's joining them on tour. Who's joining them on tour around about
1: this point? Who's joining them? Um, let, me, let me just check, check notes. Um... Laurie Del Santo turns up. Now, Laurie Del Santo, for those of you who don't know, is Eric Clapton's ex-girlfriend and the mother of his son, Connor, who had died in, in, in an accident uh, a few years before. She turns up unexpectedly during the tour.
0: Yeah. And Graeme Thompson says that Laurie showed up out of the blue and just checked into our hotel. I couldn't handle it. Curiously enough, George stepped in and took control. They travelled around together, and he seemed to have a calming influence on her. And um, how does George calm people down, I wonder? Yes.
1: <clears throat> we don't know much about this at the time, but in 2007, Ms Del Santo revealed in the Daily Mail that she had had a three-day affair with George Harrison in Hiroshima in December 1991 so from the tour diary they were in hiroshima on the 6th 7th and 8th of december if you remember eric went shopping at armani and uh, george was calming his girlfriend down
0: yeah and as she claimed in this newspaper article and by the way the daily mail is as close to being a newspaper as my cat is to being a dog you know she says that they spent three passionate days Um, behind that locked
1: door. (laughs) That's what it says in the paper, behind locked doors. And I would like to think that the... uh, journalist and again like your description of the newspaper I use the word journalist in a completely incorrect and arbitrary fashion that he was referencing the song but I, I can't imagine that's true it's just one of those I, I don't think it's all connected <laughs> coincidences <laughs>
0: um but yeah they spent three day, passionate days behind locked doors and um, Laurie described it as an act of sweet revenge because Clapton famously stole Harrison's wife Patty Boyd in case we didn't know Uh, What's the word? It's very unsavoury, the whole thing. And it's very, very odd.
1: Yes. So she says in this article that she wanted revenge because Clapton had frozen her out after the death of their son. And then George wants his revenge. And you think George wants his revenge 20 years after the event by having an affair with Clapton's girlfriend, whom Clapton has dumped effectively. Uh, th- none of this kind of makes sense. But she says it was amazing. We had so much to talk about. I will never forget that time. The memory of those three days are still with me.
0: Yeah. I mean, Lori Del Santo is um, what you would call uh, an attractive woman. And this notion that somehow George wanted revenge as opposed to, how you say, get his end away. <laughs> that that might be a bit more of a straightforward kind of uh, explanation for it um, and and he is a known womanizer although he is married he is known to be a flirtatious woman-loving chap who has had dalliances and they didn't really come to light it seems
1: you're you're being very circumspect <laughs> and very discreet but yeah he was a he was a notorious womanizer and i think you know, in 2007, uh, Miss Del Santo is has a story to tell yep. or sell. She's putting a certain spin on what happened. Uh, so I, d- I don't doubt for a second that they did have a, a dalliance, as you so discreetly put it. <laughs> but I think the whole motivation thing is, is a lot of uh, nonsense. But she says it was so private, so special, like some. You know, she's prepared to sell her story to the Daily Mail. He asked a lot of questions about Eric. He needed to, and I needed to talk. He was so sweet. He was very caring. It was not all about sex. (laughs) For one of us. I think it probably was all about sex.
0: Yeah, it says that as they relaxed in Harrison's suite, they discussed the devastating effect Eric Clapton had had on both their lives, (laughs) which, that's quite an aphrodisiac. Absolutely. And later, uh, George arranged for the hotel's Olympic-sized swimming pool to be closed off so they could have it to themselves. Hmm.
1: I wouldn't want to be getting into that pool <laughs> the next morning.
0: <laughs> I hope they put extra chlorine in there. Um, and Clapton never really found out, or if he did find out, he didn't acknowledge any of this.
1: Could I just say, he knows she's turned up. <laughs> he knows that George has taken control and is all calming her down somewhere. He didn't know that he, they, the hotel had closed the entire swimming pool. You know, what if Eric uh, Clapton had come down in his, uh, you know, Armani swimming trunks and wanted to have a swim? And uh, <laughs> sorry, George is calming your ex-girlfriend in the in the shallow end.
0: <laughs> yes, it certainly is shallow. Um, He did everything to perfection, uh, says Laurie. No gifts. At the end, he called me and said, I hope to see you, but we knew we could never see each other. I'm sure he knew. He told me, you're so sweet. I can't believe a man would never want to be with you forever. Um,
1: Yeah. Like get on
0: the plane because my wife is coming. Exactly. It's like, uh, okay, well, you better get off the bus. Um, Classic for a guy who was talking about um, being slightly worried about going back on the road because it would make him slip back into some old school unsavory behaviors.
1: He's only there for like 2 or 3 weeks and one week in he's he's at it. Yeah, so I mean I think he well you can't can't say he wasn't wrong <laughs> or he wasn't right. Can't say he wasn't right uh, about slipping back into old ways.
0: Yeah, and um, par for the course for Eric and George. Um Chris Thomas had said back in the day that uh, Harrison and, and Clapton, there was always some very weird things going on, like a magic round about people jumping on and off, swapping around, and, and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, well, famously, one of the reasons why George is slightly tetchy during the get-back sessions is that Charlotte Martin has moved into kinfawns with George and Patty. and Charlotte Martin was the uh, ex of Eric Clapton, and uh, George is having a dalliance with charlotte martin Mm. during the get back sessions so a bit of a strain on the marriage there chris o'dell will say george was not the most monogamous man in the world he was a flirt and if you flirted back it was game on Mm.
0: Um, patty boyd said no woman was out of bounds olivia said george liked women and women liked george just sadly
1: pragmatic olivia famously said you know people ask me how do you stay married in those circumstances she her answer was well you just don't get divorced <laughs> yeah you know so so i think there was a there was a an accommodation or there was a recognition there and uh but yeah the whole thing is pretty unsavory particularly given that as laurie del santo exits olivia and danny arrive
0: All right. i wonder do eric and george know that there's loads of women in the world they don't
1: constantly have to um be doing this there's hundreds Hundreds, literally hundreds of women in the world. So I believe I've never met any of them, but I believe they're right there.
0: Um, yeah. So so the tour the tour kind of proceeds. Um, George, the TV interview on the 13th of December. They play the Tokyo Dome on the 14th and 15th of December. December the 16th, more shopping at the international market in Tokyo. Um, a final performance at the Tokyo Dome on December the 17th. And then they fly home. And as you say, Olivia and Danny are in for those last Tokyo performances. So that's a busy
1: 18 days in Japan. It is. It's a busy, busy couple of days. And uh, Danny gets to play with the band in the, on the last night. Which is very sweet. And it's a
0: successful tour. We should say this, that this is this delivers from a business sense and from a you know critical sense, uh, what it was supposed to do. Each venue was kind of a ten to twelve thousand seater venue, so he played to about a hundred to one hundred and twenty thousand people, and the tour grosses just a little bit under ten million pounds. That's good.
1: That's worth having.
0: That's worth having. And particularly at the time, the other thing that's kind of going on in Georgia's world is the whole handmade thing. So ten million in the bank for you know Essentially including the rehearsals, six to seven weeks work. If you wanted that as a business model to replicate it throughout Europe and the States and Australia, he could very easily have gone into nineteen ninety three with an extra fifty million in the bank from touring the world.
1: Yes, and then if he'd toured the world and had fifty million, we wouldn't necessarily have had anthology.
0: Oh. But that might have suited George. It was a it was a Hobson's choice for George probably. Swings and
1: roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts.
0: There is a live album that uh, famously comes out of all of this. I'm sure most people listening will have at least uh, had a passing listen to that live album.
1: Yes. Yeah, so live in Japan comes out uh, July 1992. It is produced by Spike and Nelson Wilbury, which are both George.
0: Both Georges uh, Wilbury's pseudonyms. I would say that this is not a good live album.
1: Yeah. yeah it does does really well in the charts. In Japan, uh, so it reached mm-hmm. number fifteen uh, in Japan. Last well elsewhere, failed to chart in the UK and debuted at number one hundred and twenty-six uh, in the Billboard uh, Top Two Hundred, and then dropped out of sight. So it does not do well. And again, you've got to think: is this a bit of a sort of slap in the face for George? You know, you put you, you tour; it's very successful in Japan. You put out this album. You would think. There would be an interest in this. It got it got reasonably good reviews and some terrible reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in Rolling Stone, it said, by and large, this is a rockin' extroverted performance, and that is where Clapton and Ben, providing a solid foundation, help firm up Harrison's repertoire and resolve. From the sprung rhythms and tart slide like of Old Brown Shoe to the crunching satire of Devil's Radio, it's a pleasure to hear a pair of past masters bring out the best in each other the irony being they're not speaking to each other on stage you know
0: (laughs) yeah uh, Entertainment Weekly said um, Harrison sounds woefully out of shape he's either continually short of breath or struggling instrumentally to keep the tempo it's a wonder no medical advisors are listed in the credits the soul shining moment belongs to Clapton whose solo on Why My Guitar Gently Weeps is perhaps even more spectacular than the one played on the original there certainly is a kind of a temerity a kind of a timidness in, um, in George's performances I think on the album
1: yeah, I, I I think so, and you can hear him struggling a little bit with the phrasing. And ironically, "Piggies" is the song that I think shows this m- most. Maybe because it's a sort of slightly slower tempo or something. I'm not I'm not quite sure what it is, but certainly on that so that's a song that you could easily have cut from this album. Um, yeah. uh, the album, I I do remember reading a review, but I couldn't find it for these for these notes, and it just said this album is like listening to paint dry. Mm-hmm. You know that it's it's too polished, it's too perfect, it's all very anodyne. I've kind of mellowed slightly. Uh, maybe that's because I realize you know we're not going to get another George Harrison live album. This is this is what we've got. But I, I think it's Clapton lets the side down. Clapton just peels off solo after solo in an Eric Clapton style. He's got a particular tone mm-hmm. uh, to his playing. Yeah. That, that he doesn't vary at all
0: there are five um clips out there from the show and um, you know it's uncertain as to whether the whole show exists in a vault somewhere or not some people think that maybe only the first couple of songs were filmed but you kind of think there has to be a whole show somewhere particularly if there was monitors in the venue um mm. somebody would have been running a feed to a to a, to a recording from the cameras but anyway you know you can see Clapton do the solo on taxman and he just turns the solo into a very dull Eric Clapton solo you know the exciting yeah. Paul Taxman solo it's just Claptonified and he just he just does that thing he does
1: it doesn't seem to make any concessions to the yeah. fact that these the these are not Eric Clapton songs one of the things that you always hear said about George when he's with the Beatles is that he spent so much time making sure the solo was the right fit for the song he doesn't just you know kind of dash off uh a solo he puts a lot of thought into it mm-hmm. and clapton simply doesn't do that here
0: yeah clapton s- solos in the sense of each one he he wants to do improvisation clapton mm. um so if you look at the timeline you know the, the gigs are at the end of 91 the live album comes out in 1992 um, in the summer in July, so just you know, a couple of months after the gig, and in the interim, there there's a couple of things that happen. One is this notion of is George going to do more of this? And I certainly remember at the time thinking, oh, this this could be the start of something. You know, we might get a George Harrison tour. I would love to see that. Um, you know, if 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 he was uh, being managed or if he was, you know, more um you know, careerist in his thinking. You probably think, actually, mm. 1992, you should have gotten, been getting out a, a follow-up to Cloud9. It was five years old, coming up to five years at that point, And tour that, you know, that'd be a good idea uh, to get more hits. But he basically decides not to tour next.
1: Uh, there was definitely speculation. Chuck LaBelle talked about this and and he says, We were begging George, bring this to the States, people would eat this up. And this is interesting. Chuck Lavelle says, We said we would work with you in a heartbeat with or without Eric. (laughs) He would just kind of smile and laugh and nod. But at the end of the day, that wasn't what he wanted to do. We were terribly disappointed. He was nervous, but I think he was more comfortable doing it in Japan than he would have been in Europe or America. So the band are really urging him, you know, they they must feel there is something special here. There is an appetite for this. People will eat this up, in yep. Lavelle's words, uh, in America. And you think that, that absolutely would have been the case. But I think George's ambitions just don't lie in that direction.
0: Well, Chuck's statement there, that wasn't what he wanted to do. That's just it in a nutshell. He just didn't want to do it. Yeah, really.
1: absolutely, th- 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 absolutely. Th-
0: and if he didn't have to do it, then he wouldn't do it, um, and and that's that. Really, the thing the thing that did happen next, which is something I remember very very well, is the Albert Hall gig in London on April the sixth, nineteen ninety two. So this is a bit of a postscript or a follow up to the, the the Japan tour, and this was something I remember at the time being announced at very short notice, getting an awful lot of publicity, um, like being on the the news because this is. George's first UK gig in forever, basically. It's his first solo UK gig with his name on the uh, marquee. And the other thing I remember about all the publicity around it was the kind of the sneering laughter and mockery that was kind of going with it. Because, well, what's the context of this gig?
1: Well, I, I agree with you. I remember the gig being announced. I, I I didn't know this gig was happening literally until the day before it happened. Um, And there was a a big article in in the newspaper and a picture of George in a white polo neck looking very strange with a little (laughs) moustache. Yeah, he was doing this effectively as a, I suppose, charity gig is the wrong phrase, but he was raising money for the Natural Law Party, which was a a, a recently formed political party that was standing uh, fielding candidates in the UK election. And it was to raise awareness and to raise money for that uh, political party.
0: Yeah, and the thing I remember people um, kind of joking about was that uh, they wanted people to have Transcendental Meditation and flying, that people were going to be able to fly through the power of the mind. And this, is, this was kind of used as a stick to beat George with, like, even though this gig in the Albert Hall, which is, I think, a very perfect venue for George to be playing and a perfect size, uh, there was kind of this mockery to say, oh... Look at the foolish old hippie. And George is the problem. Is George was so earnest about it all, and really believed in it all, and tried to get Paul on board with all of this, that um, you know, it kind of, uh, it kind of distracted from what was happening.
1: I think so. And uh, yeah, I I remember the news articles at the time and, and and magazine articles, and there were little clips on the TV of people doing yogic flying, which seemed basically to be trampolining with your legs crossed. But uh, th- this this notion of bringing transcendental meditation to the people, to the public, into schools. And and you think about it now, that, that, that's 25, 30 years ahead of its time, because this is what's happening now in schools. They have mindfulness. It's called mindfulness, mindfulness yeah, now. Yeah. But yeah, it was uh, sort of a slightly mocking tone, and it was, look at the old hippie. George put out a press release, and George has never really got involved in politics as such uh, before, but he said, I want a total change and it's not just a choice between left and right. The system we have now is obsolete and not fulfilling the needs of the people. Sound familiar? <laughs> Times have changed and we need a new approach. The Natural Law Party is turning this election into a wonderful national celebration and I am with them all the way. So he he does seem very earnest and very heartfelt, but it, I, I I think certainly I I, I remember the tickets. There were still tickets available mm. the day before the show. Because that was mentioned in the article. Because I I, I part of me thought I could get on a plane <laughs> and uh, go to London and buy a ticket. Um uh, but you know, i am sure I'd catch him next uh, time.
0: I, I yeah, I perhaps uh uh, I wasn't perhaps in quite a. Uh, I didn't have a salary at that point. I uh, <laughs> wasn't really. I uh, was still in school, basically. But um, yeah, I couldn't really get to it. But, you know, it, it, it was a very last minute gig. And just to give an idea of how last minute w- it was, you know, the, this was Monday, the 6th of April, was the gig. I think it was announced with about three days' notice. The election itself was on Thursday, the 9th of April. So I don't know how much they were going to um, shift the needle of UK politics. The manifesto for the party talked about the development of each individual's consciousness through transcendental meditation reduce healthcare costs um you know through the Maharishi approach maintain the collective health of the country by going into yogic flying. Well, yes. Um, But, you know, bringing the individual and the country into tune with natural law, um, ensuring that the country's work and home environment support health and happiness. Uh, Again, as you say, 30 plus years later, there are certain countries in the world that are having ministries for happiness and are seriously looking at at mindfulness. Um, But yeah, this was all suggested, according to Harrison, by the Maharishi um, about a week before the general election. And uh, he thought that Paul and Ringo should also stand as MPs for Liverpool, for the Natural Law Party. And, you know, I love the fact that George rings Paul, you know, out of all the things they could have been talking about or doing with their time, uh, George rings Paul and goes, listen, I have an idea. And Paul Paul recounts this.
1: Paul talks about this and he said, he, George, rang me from LA and said, I've been up all night and you might think this is a bit silly. We'll introduce meditation for everyone. George was saying, you know, places like Bradford and Blackburn or Southall where they have a big Indian community, they're going to bring in holy men to be candidates. You know, we can be MPs. And (laughs) Paul being the sensible one said, you know, he kind of thinks about this for about 10 seconds and thinks, I don't want to do constituency work (laughs) and um, you know, dealing with people's housing benefit and uh, getting the drains cleaned and stuff like that. But George clearly for, for, for at least the length of that phone call is seriously thinking that you could have paul george and ringo as mps for constituencies based in the liverpool area and sure wouldn't that be great and part of me thinks you should have done that in 1967 you should have you should have oh, stood wow. stood in 1967 or
0: 1968 <laughs> you know bless him his heart was in the right place i think the re- news reports at the time you know just sort of seemed to make him seem a bit silly. And it, it kind of deflected from the fact that George from the Beatles was doing his first UK gig on the back of a Jap- Japanese tour. And to me at the time, uh, and and to you as well, it was like, oh, well, this is just the logical next step. He's still doing the live thing yes. and it's still an idea that's in play. But, you know, it turns out to be his only, you know, his last UK ticketed gig. And the gig itself is almost a better gig than the any of the Japanese gigs. And I, I would love to think there's a tape of this gig somewhere. You've support from Joe Walsh and Gary Moore, which is great. And then you have George Harrison and the Hijack Band, which is kind of an adjunct to the Eric Clapton band with a much better guitarist, Mike Campbell, in place of Eric Clapton.
1: Yes. And I think the very fact that it was called the Hijack Band, I think is, you know, he's hijacked telling. the band from Eric Clapton. And uh, yeah, I think yeah. it's telling that Clapton isn't there. I remember at the time people saying he is upstaging Eric Clapton because the Royal Albert Hall is Clapton's venue. You know, Clapton had done his yes. 24 nights and had put out the, the album, etc. But uh, yeah, so Mike Campbell comes in. Nathan East is not available and he is replaced by Will Lee on bass. So you'd like Will Lee.
0: I like Willie because obviously he was in David Letterman's band, um, uh, you know Paul Schaefer's World's Most Dangerous Band as bass player, and uh, you know the CBS Orchestra in later days. So he's he's a very bouyant and talented bass player, and he's also a session man who's just played on all of your favourite records, and uh, including I think Steely Dan records. I think he's on Gaucho, and um, yeah, he also plays in a Beatles tribute band called yes. uh, the Fab Faux. F-A-U-X. They are they, they are very very good. Um, oh, and the set list is very similar I want to tell you Old Brown Shoe Taxman Give Me Love Something What Is Life piggy Come Got My Mind Set, You Cloud Nine Here Comes The Sun My Sweet Lord All Those Years Ago Cheer Down Isn't It A Pity Devils Radio So no pesky Eric Clapton Interlude A tight A tight set list there Piggy's still for some reason And then there's Really Notable Guests For The Encore
1: Yeah So While My Guitar Gently Weeps Gary Moore Steps in uh, For Eric And uh, A certain Mr Ringo Starr Joins. Incredible. Um,
0: then roll over Beethoven with Ringo Starr and Joe Walsh, so um, even more incredible. And uh, then they just do more roll over Beethoven, and Danny comes on stage. Yeah.
1: So it just it just keeps going. And uh, I, I am pretty certain that this gig has not been professionally recorded because I've never heard any soundboard bootlegs of it. There are audience tapes. Um, yeah. There, there is film. Uh, you know, kind of like video Handheld video uh, footage But uh, Yeah, it, it's, it's a perfect set list And you should say Better than Japan Because you don't get, have to listen to Wonderful Tonight <laughs> The only downside I <laughs> said there, there is no toilet break uh, Set of song That's the <clears throat> thing That is problem for people of a certain
0: age. Um, but it's, it's you know, if you focus on the music, George was very, very, very positive about it. For He said, for years I'd always had the press, uh, the impression of the press being bitchy and nasty and I'd built up this impression that the British don't like me and my music. When I stepped on the Royal Albert Hall, it was unbelievable. I couldn't control it. The audience were just so happy it was the most incredible Buzz. And that is a lovely, positive thing. And, you know, as this turned out to be his last gig, I'm glad he had a positive, loving experience. But I think it does point towards that thing you were saying, which was that if they'd stepped out into, you know, beyond Japan onto stages in the UK and the US, people would have gone crazy. Japanese audiences can sometimes be a little bit, you know, they're very very joyful but they can sometimes be a bit more reserved now maybe george would have found the nervous system aspect of crazy crazy audiences a bit um a bit wearing in the end but um yeah as you say there is some youtube some very dodgy video camera youtube footage where you can see him introducing ringo and people just going nuts um yeah it's it's a it's a nice gig and the fact that mike campbell is there makes you realize that you know the, the the actual band that should have backed him up in japan was the heartbreakers
1: Yes, that would have been great. That would have been a fantastic yeah. set. And then, but then, you know, George Harrison and the Heartbreakers, you're only one step away from being a Wilburys gig. Well, you had the Bob Dylan and Heartbreakers tours in the mid 80s, yeah?
0: and hopefully they will be bootleg series some days because, um, you know, the, the, there's some interesting shows there. But uh, yeah, I think the Heartbreakers would have been a very kind of organic uh, kind of group for him to, to tour with.
1: I I think it would be, yes, more organic. It would be less sterile and uh, less Eric Clapton, which is always a good thing.
0: (laughs) You can't have too little Eric Clapton. Um, Then uh, that's kind of it. There's one more significant George appearance, which is the, uh, the, the Bobfest gig. Bob Dylan's 30th yes. anniversary celebration in October 1992, which itself is now more than 30 years ago. So we, we haven't had a Bob Dylan 60th uh, anniversary celebration, but uh, this was a, a proper gig with rehearsals and, and George is there.
1: Yeah, so they've they've, they've got uh, G.E. Smith from Dylan's band is he, sort of the musical director, and uh, they they do rehearsals um, over two or three days in October. They have a dress rehearsal, and then uh, on the sixteenth of October, nineteen ninety two, uh, the full show. So you've got uh, George, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, Tom Petty, Roger McGuinn, Steve Cropper, Jim Keltner, Stevie Wonder, Mary Chapin Carpenter. It just goes on and on and on. Sinead O'Connor of course famously comes on at that gig and is booed off the stage by a New York audience. Um yes. it it's it's a very I, I remember at the time being very excited to hear that this was going out and rushing down to O'Connell Street Bridge the next day to buy a bootleg tape that had been taken <laughs> off on a, a, a radio feed where well, you got the whole Sinead O'Connor uh incident. Mm. Um, on, on that tape but my fun fact about this uh, um, concert is George thought this was a charity gig mm-hmm. and that's why he agreed to appear and then part way through he finds out it's not a charity gig the money isn't going to charity the money is going to Bob Dylan and <laughs> uh, Columbia Records so what he does is he uh, sent Bob some t-shirts with Bob's face and a big dollar bill uh, imposed on the top of uh, Bob Dylan's face, which I think is nice.
0: <laughs> that is nice. I recently came across it on Sky Arts one night and I, I, I found myself watching it again, which I don't know how to ever even watched the whole thing straight through. And at the time, you're kind of thinking, oh, these are the old guard of rock and roll. And then now now you look at it thinking, oh, they're all so young. They're all so beautiful and young. Um, uh, and that's just uh, the, the way it is. Um, you know, what happens next? George just... I mean I know we have the anthology and all of that stuff that happens next but it's um you know he he just recedes really
1: that's it that's it he plays a couple of you know down the pub a couple of nights uh that type of thing but he just recedes and he he shows no inclination uh to go on stage again um the only sort of other high profile uh spot is at the end of 92 where he turns up at a Jeff Porcaro tribute gig, um, where, where they do with a little help from my friends. But it, clearly, I think he has satisfied that ambition. He's he's gone on tour. He has satisfied himself. I think that he can do it, but he doesn't want to do it, so he doesn't have to do it. And so. he was
0: pr- he was pretty certain about that at the time. He said in 1992, after three or four nights of doing the concert. My ego was satisfied. and the kind of person who would love to play whenever I feel like with a band, and it might as well be the Holiday Inn in Nebraska, somewhere where no one knows you and you're in a band situation just making music. And, you know, he knows himself. His ego was satisfied. He had, he had done it. He had ticked it off the list. There was no reason to keep doing it. And that's a very Beatle way
1: of doing things. You know, I've done this. Um, why do I need to keep doing this? Exactly, exactly. So what, what he's describing there, you know, uh, I'd love to play, whenever I feel like it, with a band, Holiday Inn in Nebraska. He's describing jumping up on stage at the Palomino Club with uh, John Fogarty and Bob Dylan and Taj Mahal and Jesse Ed Davis. He's describing jumping up on stage with Deep Purple. It's that he, he enjoys the camaraderie of a band, but he doesn't want to be a band leader. He doesn't want the pressure. Mm-hmm. And as you say, why why repeat yourself? But It's, that's why I think the Wilburys is such a perfect fit. Yes. It's just guys coming together in a garage, you make some music and then you, you, you move on. And, um, that, that's, that's the height of his ambition.
0: We will never know, you know, you know, after George passed away in 2001, whether he would have ever ventured out to, to, to play live again. But there certainly has been a way in the 21st century that certain acts have gone back out on stage. And the, the kind of things I'm thinking of are, you know, sort of Brian Wilson, where, you know, they, they kind mm. of appear on stage and there's, you know, a full appropriate mechanism of musicians around them to deliver what they, they need to deliver. Um but you know, more recently, the the thing I've seen that I thought would have suited George Harrison down to the ground are the 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 Joni jams, the two Joni Mitchell gigs we have seen in the last year. Yes, very much have a vibe of we are trying to recreate the musicians' circle on stage, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, but if you listen to them and hear them, they're very sympathetic and enjoyable and good natured. And if there was only some way that that could have been an avenue for George back on stage, I think that would have worked.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, you could see a situation where maybe Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Tom Petty, you know, might have done something. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the Joni jams, I'm quite conflicted about the Joni jams because oh, I think really? if, if, if yeah, I I kind of think, you know, I want to hear Joni Mitchell. I don't, I, I don't need to hear a Mumford or a Brandy Carlisle or <laughs> I listened to the live album, the Newport album. And, and I thought more Joni, more Joni, less Mumford. Is what yeah, I want. but
0: if Joni's happy, that's the that's the main thing. The, the other kind of relation, realization I've had looking at these, you know, like George did two tours. He did the 74 tour and the 91 tour. That's it. Mm-hmm. And actually yeah. what he should have done was he should have done them in reverse order. He should have toured with Clapton in 74, and he should have done a world music tour in 1991. And if he had done them in the other way around, I think the results would have been totally different.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think by 1991 sort of the the world music was a thing by then. It had been mm. given that name. You know, that name, that terminology didn't exist in 1974. But I think you're right. I think, I think they would have been much more open. And if you remember that Rockline interview that uh, oh, yeah. he does, he, he uh, you know, insists on them playing uh, Bulgarian folk music That's the, that somebody had given. So he, he, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think if it had been done the other way around... Um, George and Eric in 1974, that would have been quite a medicine, a lot of medicine flying about then. I a would lot of medicine
0: and a lot of um, females. Um, <laughs> so to wrap it up, there's a nice story from Steve Ferrone about trying to get the, the live album over the line.
1: There is, and I think this absolutely sums up this point that we're making about about George and how he, he, he likes how he approached that experience so uh, this is in the Graham Thompson book again and uh, George flies Steve Farone over first class from New York to record an overdub on the live album and Steve Ferron says I get there and George told me there was one bass drum beat missing all I had to do was hit a bass drum once he must have spent about $10,000 just to get me there and he said well it needed your sound I think he just wanted to hang out he didn't Quite want to let go of the guys just yet.
0: Ah, oh, nice. It is nice. Yeah, but he does. It is nice. But he does go back to his band next. He goes back to the Beatles. Hooray! And that's a story for another time that we have told in other places. So you can now go and listen to our anthology episodes again and see what it's about. Um, but what do you think, everybody? Was it a lost opportunity? Of course, it would have been fantastic to have an early 90s George tour. Uh, what do you think? We remain available in all the usual places. Uh, www.nothingisrealpod.com The website, which is the portal to all our stuff. The Nothing Is Real Facebook group. And... Um, x at Beatles pod <laughs> I'm just calling it x out of um, pity um, Instagram uh, and all the other kind of places where we go and we also want to thank all our Acas Plus supporters we have a ton of episodes up there now including our 16 songs of 66 series from this year and uh, if you're a supporter thank you for uh, helping the show um, but we remain available in all the usual places if you want to get in touch and we'd like to hear from you all but for now my name's Jason Carty my name's Stephen Cockcroft, and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAS Plus, or visit our website, Pod. Dot com.